to my mind, of course, there are moral implications here, and there are moral implications to every healthcare system and the decisions you have to make as a leader in those systems. There are moral implications to the decisions Canadians have made about how to spend money. And I think those are the trade-offs that we need to make. You'll notice in the book in Africa, there's also discussion about the morality of what we were doing, providing medical evacuation services in Africa. I mean, that opens a whole can of worms about how you should be spending money. So I don't think anybody has any great ideas, but I think to delude ourselves that there isn't a moral component to these decisions is a delusion. From PHI Media, I'm LaShawn Benedict, and this is Urgent Calls from Distant Places, Episode 209, The Moral Failings of the Western Healthcare System. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. In part two of this three-part series, we continue our cross-continental journey vicariously through the eyes of Dr. Monk, author of Urgent Calls from Distant Places. This time, we take a stop in the U.S. and explore why he refers to the state of healthcare in the Western world as a moral failure, as well as his efforts to change that through his various roles in health administration. What we're going to get into now, the crux of your experiences in East Africa and then looking over the horizon back to the States and what was in your thought process at that time. You mentioned that at 18, 19, no one could have convinced you that you were going to be in medicine. Then you ended up in healthcare administration. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you saw yourself to be involved with? What were some of the factors around how we went from those various experiences that you've had to like going specifically in healthcare administration in the U.S.? I realized that there was a great amount of work that needed to take place in in trying to fix the U.S. healthcare system. And, it, you know, it's such a large system. It occupies such a large percentage of the national GDP that it's basically this, like, Titanic that's that's very, very difficult to steer differently or to really have any impact, right? It's such a large system. And I realized when I came back from Africa that uh, I didn't, necessarily want to spend the rest of my career pushing a rock up the hill every day. I thought there was an opportunity to try to build a better system. And so I think for anybody who's thinking along those lines, there's kind of, I think, three approaches to trying to fix a healthcare system, right? The first approach is to try to do it through regulation and policy. And there are plenty of smart people in public health and in politics who do yeoman's work in trying to get the policies to work correctly. And, and we'll talk about the U.S. system in a bit, but I mean, this that's a system desperate for better policy and better regulation. Um, the Canadians have a different set of problems. Uh, but you know, one of the reasons the Americans are buying medication out of the United States, oh, sorry, out of Canada is because it's, it's much, much less expensive. Why is it less expensive that, you know, the Canadian government's negotiated rigorously with the pharmaceutical companies, which the Americans choose not to do for various reasons. And so there's a, so that's, that's the first opportunity to go in there as sort of a policy guy or, or a politics guy and really try to push change from that perspective. The second way of doing this, which is to work within the established system, and there are plenty of people trying to do that today. Like you'll go work for a large academic medical center or a large insurance company, and you'll try to make incremental change from within. That's got mixed success, right? I think it's hard to change organizations from within, in my experience. The third is to 
bring an outsider's perspective and try to bring an innovator's lens. And, and that's really the path that I chose to pursue. I became very interested in the United States in um, a form of, of medical reimbursement called capitation, which is a completely different way of paying for healthcare. Um, both the Canadian system and the American system are basically paid on a piecemeal basis, right? Whoever provides service gets the bill for the service. And, it, and, and I think what you learn very quickly is that it creates terrible, terrible misaligned incentives when you pay for service like that, because what you're trying to generate is a healthier patient and you've prevented a lot of illnesses and prevented a lot of surgeries from having to happen. But under the current framework, there's no way to get reimbursed for all that terrific care. I mean, primary care is notoriously underpaid and underfunded. And so what I decided to do in the United States was to try to focus on these alternative payment models and work in innovative young companies that were trying new things, some of them venture capital back, and to try to create a model that worked much better. And if it did work better, there would be uptake from the larger systems and from the policy guys. And that's exactly what happened in the US was that I worked for example for a startup company doing senior primary care. And we ended up with a fabulous, fabulous service. It's exactly what you would hope your mother would get if she were older and sicker. And it was funded originally by venture capital, and we managed to negotiate unique payment models with insurance companies. And ultimately, it became those types of primary care groups became the model for a new way of government paying for primary care in the United States, which to my mind has been very effective. So I chose the third route, and it, it meant that I would be in leadership roles and, and step away from the bed to a greater extent than I had before, but it was to also, I think, quite an effective way of proof of concept. Pulling back the curtains even more on the U.S. healthcare system, what we find is some realities that are challenging to confront. A reality where literally patients' lives hang in the balance. It often starts with patient satisfaction, or in this case, dissatisfaction. I think the, the first question you have to ask really is, what rubric do you use to evaluate a healthcare system? And there are different rubrics out there. I'm a fan of, of what's called the quadruple aim here in the United States. It's a way of measuring performance, and it has to do with cost, quality, patient satisfaction, and provider satisfaction. Really, that's at a high level kind of how it comes together. There's obviously multiple different rubrics, but I like that one because I think it's it, it brings a bit of a holistic perspective in. You know, clearly there are times when you're trying to, for example, improve costs and decreases. That's the Canadian issue, right? I mean, it's we're trying to we're trying to work within a budget in Canada. Wait times access is is the consequence, right? People, you know, waiting months, years, years for these elective services. Access is a different problem in the United States, which is that people, if you don't have the right insurance or you can't afford your deductible, your copay, you don't get in. So that's you know also an access problem. Costs are a real, real issue in the majority of healthcare systems, and um, I say no place worse than the United States. Evidence for this played out in the recent Harris Poll, conducted from February to March 2023, where a staggering statistic emerges. More than 70% of U.S. adults believe that the healthcare system is failing to meet their needs in at least one way. This sentiment is further reflected in the survey ratings, where half of the respondents graded a system a C or below. This is surprising since the U.S. spends more per capita on healthcare than any other high-income country, while not having comparable life expectancy and other positive health outcomes. Experts have highlighted several factors that contribute to this, but Dr. Monk particularly is concerned about the profit-focused nature and other inefficiencies in how the system operates. 
We always say these Canadian tourists come down and they, you know, have an accident and they get stuck in the American healthcare system. It's an absolute nightmare from a cost perspective. Things are utterly unaffordable. You know, they say here uh, for an average family of four, the average cost of private health insurance in the United States is now over $20,000 a year. It's about $22,000. And that's with deductibles and co-pays that can be in the tens of thousands of dollars as well. So ultimately, it's really catastrophic coverage for a lot of folks. They have the insurance. They don't dare use it because they have to eat the first, you know, thousands of dollars of cost. So it, it's a really malfunctioning system. I would say the one bright spot in America, the thing that works really well is that if you are sick as a dog, you will get some of the best care in the world, as you do in Canada, frankly. I mean, if you're sick as a dog in Canada, the hospitals are fantastic, right? The University of Toronto, great, great places to get care. But the systems are all struggling with the same same problems. Patients aren't happy. Providers aren't happy. The costs are out of control. Uh, quality is hit and miss. Prevention really isn't done well. The Canadian healthcare system is much better though, right? Well, not so fast. Dr. Monk draws some parallels between the Canadian and U.S. healthcare systems. Though both not perfect, they have some unique challenges. In particular, for the U.S., the landscape is characterized by competing visions of cost, quality, patient satisfaction, and provider contentment. For Canada, it's about how society as a whole chooses to spend healthcare dollars. How can such very different systems charter pathways towards a more equitable future? True transparency remains elusive, leaving patients adrift in a sea of complexity. When you play all these things out in the book that you wrote and some of the broader discourse that you've been involved with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is categorizing all this as sort of a moral failing. Why that word specifically? I think it is a moral failing. Listen, I'll give you my perspective as my Canadian-American now working for the past 20 years in the American healthcare system. There are a lot of people at the trough in the U.S. healthcare system, right? And one of the reasons the costs are as high as they are, A, there's a resistance to implementing policies that control costs. So, for example, until recently, the Medicare program, that's the national health insurance for older folks, was unable to negotiate with uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers with regard to pricing, right? So that's now being changed. It's one of the things that was sorely needed. But as a consequence, you know, pharmaceutical companies and, and medical device manufacturers will charge as much as the market will bear. And there is, in our system here, at every step along the way, there are intermediaries who create bureaucracy, or create steps or create services, our middlemen along the way, and every one of those people takes a cut out of the healthcare dollar. And so that by the time you're done, I always like to use this sort of illusion of this sort of flow of money starting like the Amazon. By the time the tributaries have taken all the water out along the way, uh, you get down to a small trickle on the other side, and that's the patient, right? And they're getting sort of this, the actual tangible service of a doctor or clinician treating these patients you know, it's, it's this microscopic fraction of the aggregate healthcare costs, which every step along the way have been, the money's been taken out of the system. To my mind, you know, are there, of course there are moral implications here, and uh, there are moral implications to every, every healthcare system and the decisions you have to make as a leader in those systems. There are moral implications to the decisions Canadians have made about how to spend money. And I think those are the trade-offs that we need to make. You'll notice in the book in Africa, there's also discussion about the morality of what we were doing, providing medical evacuation services in Africa. I mean, that opens a whole can of worms about how you should be spending money. So I don't think anybody has any great ideas, but I think to delude ourselves that there isn't a moral component to these decisions is a delusion. 
The challenges within the Western healthcare system are clear to see, whether you're on the inside or the outside. Now, how does experiencing healthcare systems in other countries or continents change the way we perceive systems we've known our whole lives? Despite limited resources, there are things that the African healthcare system gets right and that we can learn from. Now, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about too in terms of even people's perceptions or misconceptions about what happens in the different corners of the world is, okay, based on what we see in the media and based on what we see in the news, Africa in general as a continent and the countries within it have a primitive healthcare system. Our Western way of doing things is superior and it's about what we can take from what we do to bring it there. In your book and in the way you've reflected on these experiences, I'm seeing a bit of a shift in terms of how you see things. You're looking at the knowledge you've gained working in Eastern Africa yeah. and, and through AMREF, and you're bringing learnings from there that you can use to improve the U.S. healthcare system. Can you break that down for us? I, I mean, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about the African healthcare system. The truth of the matter is that in the majority of East Africa, the systems are very basic, right? Um, there mm -hmm. isn't a lot of technology. There isn't a lot of access to imaging, as an example. Pharmaceutical access is restricted. Um, but what the Africans do well is that the, the basics are almost free or free of charge, uh, right? So there is a suite of services of the most common services that are in, in Kenya, for example, available at every regional healthcare center, um, free of charge or nearly free of charge. Right. And so, you know, that's that's terrific. I think the other thing that I was very impressed by in the African system, and, it, and it's a bit of a double edged sword, but there is absolute price transparency in Africa. So when you're admitted to a hospital in Africa, the doctor will come to you and say, we need to do the following tests and we need the following supplies and we want to give you the following medication. And he gives you a prescription and you take it to the pharmacy and you buy all the stuff and you bring it back in a bag. Uh, and the prices for every service are listed outside the door and they're relatively inexpensive, right? Is there something to be learned from that? I mean, as, I think, as I said in the beginning of this interview, to my mind, one of the biggest challenges, certainly in the American system, is that you have no idea what you're going to pay. And people are gaming the system to try to make it as opaque as possible because the, the goal here is to kind of get you and give you the service and then hit you up with a bill that bankrupts you, right? But that's kind of the big trick uh, here, right? So you can ask what prices are. You'll never get a straight answer because they're variously negotiated. And I think that if patients were actually sort of given a lot more transparency about what their healthcare costs would be, I think they could make far more intelligent and rational decisions. Um, and that's one of the things I really like the, about the African healthcare system. Now, let me not be a Pollyanna about it. I mean, this, this, was, in a, this was a bidirectional exchange, but I also want to be clear. I mean, there is a lot of room for improvements, uh, not necessarily in Nairobi. I mean, Nairobi and South Africa tend to have fairly sophisticated healthcare systems. That's why everybody was flown from Ethiopia and DRC and, and all parts of Central and East Africa into Nairobi. The best hospitals were there. I will tell you that if you go out to sort of Goma and the DRC, uh, is the healthcare good there? No, it's sorely lacking. It's under-resourced significantly. Coming up next, the third and final episode in the series with Dr. Monk where we get exclusive access to some of the 22 stories he writes about in his new book, Urgent Calls from Distant Places. From providing emergency medical care in the strangest places against the clock 
to navigating complex geopolitical conflicts to save lives. That's next time on Urgent Calls from Distant Places, an original series from the Public Health Insight Podcast. This show was edited by me, Gordon Thane, with additional editing from LaShawn Benedict. Sound design and mixing by myself and LaShawn Benedict. The original music from The Music Room, composed by Tom Fox, licensed from Johnny Harris. The cover art design for our show by LaShawn Benedict. The Public Health Insight Podcast is produced by PHI Media. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.